Welcome to the Couple Money Podcast. If you're looking to become financially free together, this is your show. Here's your host, El Martinez. Whether we plan to or not, our kids will pick up their financial habits based on what we say and do around them. In fact, we can probably look back at our parents and get an idea of how they shaped us. So what can we do to make sure we're giving our kids a good start with money? In this episode, Ron Lieber, New York Times columnist and author of the newly released book, The Opposite of Spoiled, will share the latest research to help parents raise kids who are generous and smart about money. As a bonus, Ron offers listeners a special opportunity to make a difference and show your kids the power of giving. Before we began the interview, I mentioned to Mr. Lieber I had two kids, a very newborn and a toddler. And he pointed out that even preschoolers can learn a thing or two about money and values. A few years ago, he had done an interview with Elmo talking about needs and wants. Now, when I read The Opposite of Spoiled, it was obvious that Lieber did an incredible amount of research, asked him what findings or which experts surprised him the most. You know, I had not worked much in this area. In my day job, I'm a personal finance columnist, so I know about a lot of the research about, you know, index funds and investing and mortgages and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was new to all this. I came in with eyes wide open. You know, I think the two um, books um, that were themselves based on a lot of academic research and in and in one case, you know, particular studies that I found the most compelling um, was a book um, by Tim Kasser with a K, K-A-S-S-E-R, on, I think it's called The High Price of Materialism, and he's one of the um, nation's leading experts on materialism. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's just so much evidence that uh, materialistic values and tendencies are damaging um, for us in all sorts of ways. Uh, and. And, you know, Kasser doesn't do the normal academic dodge of saying, well, we need more studies about this and we need more studies about that. He actually gives advice. It's clear from his, you know, highly readable non-academic prose, kind of exactly how um, we grown-ups, and I think for kids too, ought to um, recalibrate our thinking uh, to tack away from kind of more materialistic tendencies. Uh, I just think it's, the work is profound. And the other um, uh, book I, I really loved and drew, you know, a couple of really um, crucial concepts from it was by a sociologist at the University of Virginia named uh, Allison Pugh, P-U-G-H. And her book is called, uh, oh God, what is it called? Uh, Longing and Belonging. Uh, and it's about, um, you know, what kids yearn for, uh, why they want the things that they want, and how families, both at the upper end of the income spectrum and the lower end of the income spectrum, um, respond uh, to kids' desires. And, um, you know, she coined phrases, uh, you probably saw them in the book, she coined phrases like the dignity gauntlet that kids must run each day at school of you know, sort of who has the jacket and who mm-hmm. has the better lunch and who has the knowledge of the latest television show because the parents let them watch and who doesn't in the way in which kids kind of navigate uh, that terrain and run that gauntlet each and every day. And she talks about things like 
symbolic deprivation, the idea that if you're lucky enough to be a family with um, more than what you need, um, assuming you don't want to give your kids everything that they want, um, you're going to be setting artificial boundaries all of the time. Um, and those can either be random uh, and kind of knee-jerk, or they can be thoughtful. And a big part of you know, my overall approach uh, was informed by that framework, the idea that we are engaging in symbolic deprivation all of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be honest about what we're doing, right? We shouldn't lie to kids and say we can't afford that. We should say, look, this is not how we choose to spend the money that we have right now. We're making a trade-off, and we're trading, um, you know, kind of less fancy food at the normal grocery store uh, and not going to Whole Foods where everything is, you know, sort of pretty and, uh, uh, and more expensive. And we're going to take that savings and we're going to spend it on uh, a really great family vacation at the end of the year. Because we value experiences over um, organic produce. Or maybe the reverse is true, right? Maybe mm -hmm. you buy the most incredible food and then you go camping. Considering how many stories and studies were given in the book, I was curious which lessons Lieber adopted in his own family. He was kind enough to share his family's ritual of gratitude. One change that I've made personally um, that affects my parenting indirectly um, is that you know I've become um, tuned in to the power of gratitude. And you know, for me, just understanding all of the social science research in the last decade around um, uh, what makes people happy and how the expression of gratitude and being grateful and gracious about the things that you have, even if you don't have everything that you want, um, can provide all sorts of incredibly positive mental health benefits. And just by stopping and thinking about gratitude at least once each day, I am actually a probably a 20 or 30 percent happier person than I was three years ago. It made a, an appreciable difference. And if you're a happy person, quite often you're a better parent or a more attentive parent um, or you're an easier parent to approach because your demeanor is different. And so, you know, we've transferred that or attempted to um, through our daughter by you know, trying to establish more regular, at least semi-regular, um, uh, grace thing rituals and or gratitude rituals and you know, we don't we don't say a religious blessing at our table uh, every night. Sometimes we do, mm -hmm. um, but when we all sit down together, uh, I always try and remember to raise my glass. Right? Kids love toasts. You know, it's a grown-up thing to do. Um, you know, the drinks wash around and it makes a nice noise, and you know, and it's cheerful. You you say cheer, and so you know, I always try and raise my glass to someone or something uh, that was awesome about my day. Uh, just to remind myself, but also to model for my daughter, um, that there are people and places and things every day, even if you've had a bad day, uh, that are worth expressing gratitude for. And um, so, you know, I like the idea of doing that, and um, it's made, I think it's made a difference for our family. Speaking of modeling, Mr. Lieber told me about parents who made a lasting impression on him growing up and a family he learned from while interviewing for the book. Yeah, so um, I think the way I think about that one is that, I, you know, I think about parents at the extremes. So I think about um, the parents of some of the wealthiest kids in my school growing up and how incredibly generous they were with the rest of the school, um, you know, throwing parties, very lavish ones for everybody in the high school, or inviting, <laughs> um, you know, all of the kids over 
up for a party or taking, you know, 15 girlfriends away on a trip um, so that nobody would feel left out. And then I think about the families uh, I know who have um, less. And, you know, I think about a, a family that I knew when I was in college, um, you know, four kids, very modest house, you know, getting a lot of financial aid. Uh, but they happen to live near the airport, and every school holiday, they took all of us in, kind of loaded us into a cargo van, and, you know, took us up and down the expressway and set us all dinner and let us, you know, sort of chill out on their 1970s furniture. And, you know, just like the most incredibly generous people. It was a reminder that nobody has a monopoly on a good time. Yeah. I had just as positive memories of, you know, eating their baked ziti in their small living room, you know, with all of us kind of huddled around, uh, as I do of, you know, going to these parties at the hotel. Um, and just one other extreme example, this is sort of a case study for me in the book, the guy Branson Dewey, whose father, you know, had all this money and kids never knew and they basically had nothing growing up. And he had to figure out, um, once he inherited all of that money in like a complete surprise at the age of 30 and was suddenly a, a billionaire and didn't have to work anymore, how was he going to parent? And he took a really modest approach um, and he decided that, you know, what he was going to lavish uh, his daughter with rather than, you know, making things much easier for her and buying her all the things that, that he never got, uh, he was going to lavish her with time and attention. He was going to be a stay-at-home dad. He was going to be there at 3.30 every day when they got home, and he was going to coach their hockey team, and he was going to, you know, buy them the equipment that they wanted that his dad, uh, you know, never uh, got for him. And so he had to buy used hockey equipment and pay the fees himself. Um, you know, I, I love how deliberate and careful um, he was and is not to tack, uh, you know, in a completely opposite direction from the one that his father tacked in. I remembered when I received a review copy, I noticed there was a pre-order special that included a DonorsChoose.org donation. Considering the scope of the book, it seemed like the perfect partnership. I asked him how it came about. Well, it was actually my agent who thought of the idea. I wish I could take credit for it because I had not only known about DonorsChoose over the years, but my daughter and I had given through DonorsChoose. Um, and we had picked out projects. Uh, you know, we sat down in front of the computer. We've done it, you know, every 12 to 18 months for a couple of years. Uh, and we would talk about the things that she really loved doing right then or the things that she really loved doing in school. Um, so, you know, one year she was really into tie-dye. And Donors Choose is kind of vast enough now that almost everything is represented. Sure enough, we dropped the words tie-dye into the search engine. And there were, you know, two or three projects kind of really? scattered across the country. Yeah, and so, you know, we took our money and we funded a couple tie-dye um, uh, kind of lessons and materials for these kids. And, um, you know, so she, she thought that was great in and of itself, that she could um, introduce a bunch of kids who had never tie-dyed before to the thing that brought her such joy and that, you know, she felt so strongly about. But then six or eight weeks later, we get this enormous package of thank you notes from each and every kid and all these pictures that the teacher had taken of these smiling kids in big low t-shirts. And it was just about the best thing ever. And for a kid to see the power of a relatively small amount of money to make other kids happy who may not have as much as, um, as your kid does, it's addictive. Here's an idea. Let's extend the offer to your reader. Let's say that, you know, the first 20 people who um, hear about the book uh, through your site and send me a proof of purchase from, you know, their favorite online retailer, their favorite independent uh, bookstore. You know, they can send me a picture of a receipt. Um, I will, um, I'll send them a code for a $27 gift card. It's incredibly sweet of Mr. Lieber to offer this, and I hope you take him up on it. 
having your kids sit in and discuss and pick out a classroom project to help out with can be an incredibly powerful lesson on giving. As we're wrapping things up, I asked Mr. Lieber if there was a key takeaway he hoped readers gained from the opposite of spoiled. That there is a direct connection between talking about money and teaching kids values. I think for parents who have, you know, any sort of reticence about this, to hesitate, to maybe have some shame around their own money habits or their lack of knowledge, or if you just want to protect their kids from all of this stuff a little bit longer, I would ask them uh, to consider the fact that, you know, all of these values and virtues and character traits that we want um, to uh, imprint uh, on our kids before we shove them out in the world, um, money is actually a great way uh, to teach these things. Um, and in fact, it is essential because we're asking them at the age of 16 or 17 or 18 to make what may be the biggest financial decision of their life about where to go to college and put themselves on a trajectory for their future and perhaps take on tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. And so I don't think we really have a choice about this. I think you know they need at least 10 years of money conversations and practice with money through allowance and other means uh, so that when the time comes to make this enormous decision, um, they'll know how uh, to evaluate it and they'll understand um, the connection between, uh, you know, what, um, what they spend and what they might spend and the value that might come out of it and the values that they apply to the decision-making process. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to Ron Lieber for doing the interview. If you haven't gotten the book, please take advantage of Lieber's offer. You'll not only be helping your kids, you'll be supporting a classroom of eager learners. Once you decided which Donors Choose project to support, I'd love to hear about it here on the show. Tweet me or leave a note in the comments. Please remember, subscribing to the podcast is free and easy. Plus, you'll be getting the newest episodes as they're released. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. The feed is also on the site, so you can grab it on whatever service you prefer. If you enjoyed the show, could you please tweet out or share your favorite episode? I'd love to see which ones matter most to you. Until next time, take care.